We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is a message from the emergency stuffed crust warning system. Cheese! Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pizza now has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust for just nine bucks. I repeat, it has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust. Cheese! That concludes the message from the emergency stuffed crust warning system. Get a large Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pepperoni Stuffed Crust Pizza for $9. Top four national pizza chains. Extra Most Bestest Pizza versus large round one topping pepperoni pizza. Everyday standard menu prices. Three feet of cheese before cooking at participating locations plus tax. Pizza, pizza. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. This will be about a 33 yard attempt. And, oh, it's a fake. They're going to throw it over to Dolan, and he's going to try to run it in, and he's going to run it in for the score. Holy cow. Hello, and welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. My name is Alan Williams, here with my partner in crime, James DiVirgilio. It's our first podcast after Gators lost this season. James, you're there. We're going to get all into it, but first tell us what's on tap for the show. Since this is a bye week this week, we've got a slightly different format. We're going to go ahead and talk about the LSU game at length right up front, and then we will get to our guest this week, who's Ryan Nanny of SB Nation and of Every Day Should Be Saturday, uh, which is a great blog. I know one of your favorites, Alan. And then we'll finish up with some general college football discussion, make some playoff predictions, kind of put a bow on this episode. Also wanted to thank the listeners. Last week, we hit more than 10,000 listeners for the Gator Nation Football Podcast. We still have slightly over 100 followers on Twitter, so I'm not really sure what the disconnect is, but love that everyone's listening. If you get a chance this week, please go on to Twitter and give us a follow at GatorNationFBPC, at GatorNationFBPC. We need you so that we can keep getting amazing guests like this week's guest, Ryan Nanny. Yeah, uh, he's awesome. Looking forward to sharing that with you guys. But let's jump in. James, big game against LSU, top 10 teams. Were you disappointed in this result or maybe slightly encouraged? How did you feel coming out of this? I'm going to say both. I was there in the game in Baton Rouge. Um, I was in the end zone, in the end zone where the fake field goal happened. Oof. So I had a, a front row seat on that one. 
And I want to say both. And I want to say that because I did pick us to win. I thought that we could win. I thought a lot of the things that went on in the game were things that I, I sort of expected would potentially happen. And we didn't win. So I'm disappointed that we didn't win. I don't feel like it's a moral victory. Um, I think we're better than LSU. I still think that after having played them. And the the other part about it was I was increasingly salty as the game went on, knowing that Will wasn't there to play the game. It just made me more frustrated than probably I thought it would. And, and that got me. On the other side of things, I'm really encouraged if I take a, a long-term 30,000-foot view. And I say that we have a coach that really understands how to prepare a football team and how to win with whatever he has, uh, which is greatly encouraging, very important to the future. He goes on the road as a, again, a first-time SEC head coach into a hostile environment, two top 10 teams. He's missing his quarterback who was banned for the year. And we go down 14, and he winds up really, I don't know, pulling some sort of miracle out of his hat. I mean, a lot of people, I think, would have pitched their tent and folded in the second half. And we did precisely the opposite, which you can only say is a testament to how he gets these guys to prepare and play and to believe in themselves. And it's very, very hard to do that. We certainly didn't really see Muschamp ever do it at the level we've already seen McElwain do it at. So disappointed in the loss. I thought we really should have won that game. However, very encouraged given who's at the helm. There's, there's reason to believe as long as McElwain is here, we are going to have a good football team. And this is a wild game. I mean, it didn't go anything like I thought it would. Some crazy swings, especially in the first half. We gave up 28 points in the first half. I never would have thought that. You know, trick plays and kooky things and wild scrambles. We scored. They scored. We scored. They scored. Who thought LSU and Florida would be trading touchdowns at the end of the half? Uh, so I didn't know what to think at halftime. It was nuts, but I did love... The resiliency the team showed, like you said, that shows a well-coached, well-motivated team. Let's get in and break it down a little bit. Uh, I'll jump in and talk about the offense. Um, obviously, big drop-off from Will to Treon, and we can get into why that was specifically. I think the thing for me to, that I was most frustrated by, potentially, or I shouldn't have been surprised, but we couldn't run the ball. Kelvin's stats were terrible. It's like, 25 yards and 15 carries, something like that. And that really bogged us down. And we couldn't have any kind of consistency on offense. What do you, did that the thing you were taking away? We couldn't run the ball, which obviously is blatantly obvious with our 1.8 you know yard per carry average. But I don't know that it really affected us uh, as much as maybe it should have. And the reason for that was that we had guys running so wide open the entire game. And I don't know how well you could see that on television. I know with my friends texting me during the game that they were saying they could see it. You certainly couldn't see it like I was seeing it sitting in the end zone watching what was essentially the All-22 camera, you know, 40 rows up or so. It was impressive to see how open our guys were. I mean, Brandon Powell should have had 200 yards receiving in this game. He was absolutely unguardable, and yet he had maybe one catch. Maybe one. And, I mean, he was just wide open. Uh, I could name play after play after play where we had guys running free. And Shreon, as we've talked about from the beginning on this podcast, and I don't want to toot our own horn here, but, you know, we said that Shreon throws late. His footwork is not there. He doesn't want to throw to a window. He does not want to anticipate his throws. And LSU... won't let it go. He won't. And LSU, I mean... (laughs) The gaps on film have got to be amazing, which I think in one respect, McIlwain's going to say it's really encouraging because this is a team last year with our receivers that couldn't catch balls and couldn't run routes and couldn't get open. And this year, I don't think there's a better comparison other than to say that we are the New England Patriots of college football right now. I mean, if you watch them play Sunday night, 
we're running virtually the same stuff. We just don't have Tom Brady back there right now. You know, we lost our, our Tom Brady, if you will. <laughs> and now that Will has some scandal following him, maybe that's a really apt comparison. But we didn't have that there. And so it was a game that was just frustrating as it went on. I don't know how many times I said, oh, man, if we just had Will right now, we're probably scoring 50 points. And, and, and it, I didn't know it was going to be that way. I mean, of course, I thought that Will was vastly superior to Treon. But I was really surprised with how well our offensive line did in pass protection. We had forever back there most of the time that Tram was escaping it was on his own volition yeah they weren't getting pressure in his face he had time to make any sort of throw that he wanted to and to put a little sort of conclusion on this thought because I could talk a lot about it uh, you know Treon did some things to allow us to be able to win the game I'm not sitting on here saying Treon is terrible but when you're comparing Treon to Will Greer there is no comparison in my mind. There hasn't been one since the beginning. One guy throws on time. One guy hits the windows, hits guys in stride, can make all the throws, can balance your offense. And the other guy had a coach who game planned so perfectly for him that we were able to move the ball, but yet he probably still missed 90% of the throws that were available to him. And I don't think LSU could ever stop us. I mean, if you put Will in that game and it goes the same way, I don't know how they ever stop us without even, we don't even need to run the ball because they couldn't stop our pass, which is what we talked about in the podcast last week. I didn't think they had a defense, and I still don't think they have a defense. It's really tough. I mean, they do have a good defensive line, or at least a, you know, a competent one. They're getting pressure, but yeah. So this is the thing. Every time Treon hit the back of his drop, so when he took the snap and got to where he should have released the ball, I don't think I saw him throw it one time. At that point, which is in this offense, is what you have to do, and he for whatever reason, either he can't see the lanes because he's too short or he's too indecisive or Muschamp just broke him by threatening to kill him if he ever threw a pick. Who knows? He's just unwilling to let the ball go. And that in this offense, that's that's everything. And so he can still make some plays. He's not He throws a nice ball. Like There's some things you can do. They're going to have to completely retool what we do because he can't, for whatever reason, release the ball on time. He can, and you know, we try to say that on the show in, in previous weeks, and a lot of people have asked me this. They're saying, well, hey, you seem to be someone who thinks this gulf between them is so large. The LSU fans, I can tell you, thought there was no difference. You know, they're probably making themselves feel better, but you just hit the primary thing that we've been talking about, and, and it's timing, and it's, it's confidence in making a pre-snap read. It's executing those things, and most college quarterbacks, in fairness here, are Treon. That's certainly Brandon Harris of LSU. That guy can't throw it to a window if his life depended on it. I mean, he's throwing to an open guy. And we'll talk more about that because that's one of the frustrating things that went on in the game. And Treon's the same kind of guy. So if your guy's open, he'll throw it to you. He throws a nice spiral. You know, he's one of those guys, but but Will's at a different level. And uh, against a team like LSU, who I thought, and I haven't been at every game in person this year, but I thought gave us probably the best opportunity to move the ball through the air that we've had. Uh, they didn't blitz, which was part of the play, I think. You know, they might have blitzed more if Will was there because they were probably worried about getting beat. But they actually wound up switching out a man into zone almost entirely the last couple of drives, and it really worked. I mean, they went into a basic vanilla zone, and Treon completely freaked out, which is unfortunate because yeah. every single receiver was open. I mean, it was unreal watching those last plays. I was actually so confident in the last minute. I thought we were going to drive down and score because our, our guys were wide open. But, you know, the zone got him, and that's kind of illustrative of what his weaknesses are. So we're stuck with this. It's not going to change. You know, it did make me salty. It still makes me salty. I think we'd be undefeated right now. Uh, but something that that needs to be pointed out is we could have won the game with Treon's performance. We knew he was not going to light it up. We knew he wasn't going to be the one that, that delivered us. Um, we could have won this game 
And I felt like our defense in the first half really let us down. Really let us down. Yeah, if you look at the stats, like the amount of passing yards we got from Treon, the no turnovers, and we got one from them, uh, we could have won this game, especially, you know, unfortunately our offense was a little smoke and mirrors. We got one, we got two special teams touchdowns and then one crazy one. So it was way worse than it looked on paper. But with those things happening, it felt like we could have won. I, I couldn't imagine a scenario where we gave up 28 points in the first half and we did. And it was really our secondary that let us down. Um, you know, one biting on fakes, you know, which is understandable with Fournette. But on that scramble drill, like where, you know, he's just hucking it up there and we just let the guy run it at the halftime. That was a knife in the chest. And like we never really were able to overcome that going down two scores again before the half. Yeah, we came back and tied it up. But like you said, that was that was a big hurdle. And obviously in the first half, I thought we played scared. Being there in person, I, I'm confident in saying that Leonard Fournette is the best football player I've ever seen in in the NFL or in college in person. I've never seen anyone like this guy. I mean, every single time they hand the ball off to him, I'm sitting there holding my breath, hoping he doesn't score a touchdown. And I've never seen a guy like that. I know Percy, for us, was kind of a guy like that. Not like this guy, though. No. I mean, this guy is truly unbelievable. He's probably a top three running back in the NFL right now as a sophomore in college. He's ridiculous. And I thought we actually did a rather good job on him. But we were scared in the first half. I think we were scared to sort of sell out and, and play man and let things happen. I thought we tried to keep everything in front of us. And yeah. ultimately, Cam Cameron called a heck of a game in the first half. I thought he really outgameplanned us in film study during the week. He caught us with that little slip pass to Fournette on third down they crushed us with. He caught us with a flea flicker, although Vern was kind of there. Uh, he really wasn't there. It was a very poorly thrown ball. He had to ball. recover for Keanu Neal, who yeah. bit on the fake. Right, very poorly thrown ball by Brandon Harris. I mean, he was six, seven yards open, and Vern caught him because he had to slow down so much. But really frustrating. Uh, you know, Brandon Harris is not a guy, like we said, that can throw the ball into a window. I mean, he threw a slant pass early in the game that he hitched like two or three times. We had absolutely no pressure. And that's all because of Leonard Fournette. You're worried about blitzing because if yeah. you blitz and you're wrong, it's a touchdown. And so I think we felt like we could methodically make them drive and probably have them kick field goals, which is on its own a fine game plan. It's pretty much exactly what happened in the second half. And we made those adjustments, which is why I continue to think Jeff Collins is doing a really good job. Is This guy does adjust as the game's on. But they stole 14 points from us, legitimately stole them. And it seems to be a recurring theme this yeah, year. And we've always been able to overcome it. Um, but they stole 21 points out of this game. And Marcus May, I thought, we've picked on him a lot. We, we love Marcus May as a run stopper. Marcus May's weakness as a safety continues to get us. They almost, I feel like they almost targeted him in the first half with several of those big plays going right at him. Yeah, it was interesting as we were getting, every time Brandon Harris dropped a pass, we got no pressure. I don't think he was ever under duress for a single throw. And those big crossing routes, they kept running the same thing across the middle of the field, which you need time to do. So credit their offensive line for keeping him clean and giving him the time to make those really long developing plays. But the, the our defense in the secondary, I would love to see us match up a little more instead of just having Brian Poole chase one of the receivers all the way across the coverage or something. Give a little more exotic look. I, I know the gravitational pull of Fournette is really difficult, um, but we did a good enough job on him. I mean, he got to 180 yards, which is you know anybody else you would say they ran wild, but it took him 31 carries to get that. So especially in the second half, they were able to, you know, bottle them up at least a little bit. Yeah, so that's that's the frustrating part where you feel like you needed to lean on your defense, and they weren't there in the first half. 
They weren't, and and they came back like I said in the second half. But in the first half, we and this is just me, you know, we me, I guess in this one. I came into this game really not believing in LSU. I, I I'm here afterwards saying I really don't believe in LSU. I mean, maybe that's just my my confirmation bias of my own thoughts. But I've heard the national media talk about it yesterday. I've heard others talk about it. Oh, Brandon Harris has now turned the corner. Brandon Harris is still a below average quarterback. He made two throws that totaled 100 yards, which equals half of his production. One was a flea flicker, and one was a straight jump ball that he threw with 15 seconds left. That's his passing game. If those two don't happen, he's at 100 yards passing, in which the other passes are slant routes or those those long ends you're running, where he's sitting there waiting 15 seconds to throw it to a guy who's six yards open. This guy can't play quarterback. I don't think LSU can beat Alabama. I think LSU might lose another game. Now, what they do have is an incredible offensive line and a great running back, which we knew. We did an okay enough job. We said on the podcast, if we held Leonard Fournette to kind of under 200 yards, we could win the game. That wound up being true. No one, I think, envisioned LSU getting big plays in the passing game like they did. And yet we still absorbed that body blow. We did it with a guy in Treon who was very limited hitting the passes that were on the field. We did it without a run game. We did it with Antonio Callaway being a monster. The star of the game, really. (laughs) I mean, think about this game if Callaway's not in it. If he doesn't come up with that unbelievable catch if we win that game that catch is like goes down in gator history down the sideline in the first half that brought us back with like okay i feel good about it and then we let them score and then that punt return i mean he's basically our whole offense in this game so if we don't have those big plays we get crushed um but yeah uh, so good job by callaway oh man it so i think i'm leaving this game thinking we've got to make some major changes in the bye week and we'll talk about maybe next week what we need to see before that Georgia game. But uh, let's let's talk about the field goal, um, the fake field goal. I I have to believe every Gator fan around the country, any college football fan who really knows anything about the Mad Hatter, Les Miles, has to be thinking, watch out for the fake. I know when that happened, I just let out this primal scream of just frustration that we got taken by Les Miles again. Uh, you were in the stands. I'm sure you were flipping out watching it unfold. Oh, oh, was I ever. So my friend and I are, are in the stands. Uh, they line up for the field goal, and I look at him and I say, there's absolutely no way that we're not 100% ready for a fake field goal right now, even though it makes no sense at this point in time for them to do it. We're ready, correct? And at this point in time, he pulls out his cell phone to video the play because he's thinking, hey, maybe we're not ready. So now I've got a great souvenir of that stupid play being run right in my end zone, the south end zone, right in my face, right at me, basically. And such a simple fake. That's the crazy thing about it. And and yes, like you said, I don't know. Every Gator fan that's been a fan for more than five years certainly is thinking on anything Les Miles does. It's a fake. For the majority of the whole game, we played it that way. Every punt they had, we were in safe. How in the world it gets to be that situation and we sell out for the block? It was the first time all game. There's no need to block that. No need. It was the first time all game in any special team situation that we went for any sort of block and were not in a safe mode, and it ate us up. And such, like I said, I couldn't think of a more basic play. If any one of our three edge defenders recognizes on their first step in that the kicker has just sprinted out, the play's over. There's nothing. It's 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 it. It's our ball, and we're tied. And all three of those guys go four yards before they recognize that their little kicker has taken off. And, and ultimately, I'll tip my hat to Les. He does things that seem to be really stupid, but if you like game theory, sometimes things that seem really stupid are really great. 
And and that was one of those situations. Is he knew in that situation it was practically suicide to do that, which is actually what makes it good. Is we <laughs> I guess. can't expect it. We won't expect it in this moment. And we didn't. Um, but isn't he so crazy though that you have to expect that? Like yes, there's no that from that short of a field goal, your chances of blocking it are little. But his chances of faking it feel like a hundred percent. Just be in safe mode. Ah, uh, I don't know. I can't. I mean, I feel good about the game overall. I feel terrible about that moment. And, and I'm with you. And there is no excuse. And you know, McIlwain said it was a badge of honor afterwards. And blah blah blah. Just, to me, that's not a badge of honor. That's just foolishness. We were foolish. There's no way to, to you know. To sugarcoat this, that was foolish. Whether it's our special teams coach, whether it's McElwain, whether it's Jeff Collins, whoever was in on that decision, that was dumb. And ultimately, it potentially cost us a shot at an undefeated season, even though we don't have our quarterback. You know, it might not affect us in the East at all. But it cost us potentially a win. I think we win that game. If we stop them there, we had drove down the pass two times and scored. Um, all the momentum would have been in our favor. And, and ultimately, like you said, you you have to play every single less miles field goal or punt as a fake. It's something he's earned because he does this. And the fact that we're on the road in a hostile environment tied up with an epic comeback to just let them score like that was so painful. And it cuts deep to any Gator fan. And I, and I don't care what the coaches say. What he should have said was, that was really foolish by us. The Gators have a history of this happening in the games against LSU. We should have been ready. And he didn't say that. And whatever. I love Coach Mack, but... Not a badge of honor for me. It's it's embarrassing and it's frustrating. And yes, we're pulling our hair out in the stands. And so was every other Gator fan, I'm sure, across the country. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Uh, I couldn't believe it as it was happening. It seems surreal that it worked again. Uh, so hopefully that will never happen again with as long as Coach Mack and Les Miles are both in their respective positions. Any other thing you want to say about this game? Any other thoughts? I know we got a chance to see Jordan Scarlett reappearance of him yeah and I thought that really showed the McElwain genius so when Jordan Scarlett comes into the game it's fourth down and one again they're approaching my my beloved south end zone fourth and one and they bring Jordan Scarlett in who hasn't touched the ball in I don't know how many games and and what that's going to signal to LSU is that 100% we're not handing the ball off to Jordan Scarlett and this goes back to that game theory and so Mac knows that LSU is going to think they're not handing the ball to Scarlett. So then what do you do? You hand the ball off to Scarlett, which was which is beautiful. How Scarlett doesn't turn the corner and score there, I don't know. He just kind of ran out of bounds. But excellent play. And then we ran the same play for a touchdown with Kelvin, which goes to show you again, I think that Mac understands that in college, if you have a good play during the game, it will work more than once. And he's shown the ability to do that several times. Um, I think he really has an understanding of how to manipulate his personnel package to get the looks he wants. He had a great game package where we were faking the handoff early, um, those toss plays, and then rolling Treon out. And then he basically tweaked some of those plays in the second half where we stayed in a pocket he created using sort of a wing heavy set. And uh, those are all just incredibly great illustrations yeah. of understanding how to change as the game goes on. Because we couldn't we couldn't just keep running a fake toss out to the outside. LSU was on that. They'd put their edge guys outside, but he knew that they were going to be on that. And then he kept us in the pocket. So they're shooting out to the wings to protect and we're sitting in the pocket. I mean, it was brilliant, brilliant. He deserved better from his offense than what he got. But ultimately, like we said, what do we care about as fans? We care that we have a guy that I think is probably going to be the best offensive mind, not only in the SEC, but possibly in all of college football when we get the right pieces. I mean, this guy's doing stuff at college. You see other coaches not even attempt with regards to the schemes that we have, the routes we're running. Yeah. And the offensive line, if they start to block like they did, 
I mean, the sky is the limit here for this team, and we've mentioned that before. So I loved some of the stuff, some of the packages where we brought in Brian Cox and, you know, CC Jefferson, because we don't have a fullback on the roster. We're, we're really light at tight end. So just the creativity to do that. Yeah, you've got, if you're a, you know, defensive back and you've got Brian Cox running at you full speed, like there's really not much you're going to do. So that was great to get us those touchdowns. I mean, everything we did was really smoke and mirrors. I mean, because we couldn't run a simple pass play. We couldn't run a regular, like, let's just hand it off. So almost everything we accomplished was schematically done by McIlwain. And if, so, like I said, they're going to have to go back to the drawing board and reconfigure things for this team with Treon at the helm. But I at least have some hope that they can do that. I think they will. I mean, I think we moved the ball, like we said, against LSU. We did have the benefit of not having Treon on film. Uh, teams are going to know exactly now what he can't do. And, and there's every team in the country that's going to know he can't beat zone defense right now. Uh, like we talked about, the last two drives, LSU stayed in a straight-up vanilla zone. They rushed four guys, they stayed in the zone, and that was it. Nothing special about their defense was there. Everyone else sees that. Georgia sees that. And so Treon has two weeks now to figure out how to beat that. And normally I would say we're in trouble. But with McIlwain, I feel very confident that he will draw up plays that are very simple for Treon to understand, that will be routes he's comfortable hitting, and we'll be able to do that. So all in all, disappointment from the game like we talked about. However, excitement for the overall future. We're going to talk in the next segment after our guest about maybe what does that excitement look like for this year? Can we win the rest of our games? You know, What's the ceiling look like, which we talked a lot about this whole year. But, but so far, we're at the bye week. We're right where we want to be. We control our own destiny. We actually still will control our own national championship destiny if we want to start dreaming crazy. You know, we're not at that either. So it's a great spot to be. I don't think anyone would have thought we would have been here. No. And we're here, and it's been a wild year. And with that, let's go into our Gator Nation guest segment. Well, I'm excited to bring on our next guest, Ryan Nanny. He is a contributor to Every Day Should Be Saturday, a fantastic college football blog, and is pretty much a Twitter savant, probably my favorite person to follow on Twitter, uh, and so, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Thank you very much for having me, guys. So we've got a ton of talk to talk about. I want to jump right in. So, I mean, gosh, so much has happened in the last week. I know this was a big deal in my life. I'm sure possibly in yours as well with, you know, the old ball coach stepping down. Give me your reaction to that news on Monday night. I was, I was, because I don't, I, I don't think necessarily that Spurrier has a ton left in the tank in terms of actually coaching a football team successfully. And if you watch South Carolina this season, you probably understand that. Um, but he's just, he's one of the, he's one of the easiest things to point to and say, this is what makes college football so different from the pros. We have guys like Steve Spurrier who have fun with it and say what they want and, you know, give, give sort of the fans the the uh, the agitation that they're looking for without the league or an owner sort of you know getting upset with them. He he's one of a kind, and it always sucks to have somebody uh, like that say, "Yeah, I'm walking away." Yeah, it's pretty surprising. Yeah, I feel like you can always count on Spurrier to do the unexpected, which is part of his charm, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the other big news of the week. Maybe equally surprising, or I don't even know how to put it really. Will Greer getting suspended for PEDs. I mean, I think 
every Florida fan has taken their lumps over the years. I'm going to have to ask for your reaction to that as well. Well, I mean, so when this news sort of started bubbling up, there were, you know, rumors that you, it, here's the standard practice, how it works on the internet. You start hearing like rumors that Will Greer is going to be suspended and you immediately think like, okay, worst case scenario, this is something super, super awful, something criminal, uh, something, you know, abhorrent. Then you hear, okay, this is related to a drug test. And let's be totally honest. If, when you hear a Florida football player and failed drug test, you automatically think it's weed. Like, <laughs> you just do. Because, you know, with the exception of Percy Harvin, who got to do whatever he wanted, that's, that's what happens when college football players, especially at Florida, failed drug tests. It was just so weird to hear that it was a PED thing. And that was, I think the shocking part about it, especially because as compared to testing positive for marijuana or something like that, it's such a major suspension to have to sit out a whole calendar year. It's like, it, it, it was shocking to be perfectly honest. Now there's been a lot of news and conjecture in the past seven days or so on his upcoming status on what he took to fail that test. What are your thoughts on both of those things? Do you think he's, Hey, the attorney's going to get him off, and we're going to be in good shape. And the drug he took is, you know, rather benign. Or, you know, what are you what are you thinking based upon the information we have available? Uh, um, as as far as the second point, I do, I sincerely doubt that we'll ever get a clear answer, or at least in the near future, we're not going to get a clear answer as to what he took, just because there's no real there's no real advantage for him to put that information out in the open and have. Twitter and Facebook and amateur pharmacologists talk about, you know, where he got it, how he was using it, all of that. Um, as far as what's going to happen, you know, one of the biggest questions is this NCAA rule is so rarely, uh, so rarely comes up that there's a question as to whether he will lose an extra year of eligibility when he comes back next year. I imagine that is what Florida is most interested in um, either getting a favorable interpretation of the rule or getting an appeal, something like that, because that's what really hurts at that point, uh, having a guy who, you know, looks really good as a redshirt freshman and say, okay, you're sitting down for the rest of the season and a good chunk of next. Oh, and by the way, you're also losing another year of eligibility. That would just be, that would just be such a major blow to his long-term prospects at Florida. I have to imagine that's what they're pushing hardest on at this point. I as far as him coming back this season, that seems that seems almost entirely impossible at this juncture. Now, you made mention of him losing a year. It, it seems that last week most of the sources sort of felt like that would not be the case under really any circumstance unless the NCAA wanted to – sort of go outside what their typical rulings in the past have been, but do you still feel differently? You still feel like that's something that could happen that he could actually use, lose a year of eligibility. Well, I, I think the problem here is that there has not been clear guidance from the NCAA and I can sort of, without giving too much away, I can tell you that some of, you know, we've talked to administrators and people in compliance at a handful of schools and they're not totally clear on it either. The rule is not, written in such a way that you can definitively say, yes, it's just the year you're sitting out, or yes, 
it's a year on top of that. Um, so it, it may be that, that, that that's the worst case scenario and it's not going to come to pass, but it still is on the table in much more so than I think any Florida fan would like it to be right now. And let's turn our attention to the LSU game that happened this past weekend. I was there for the game in Baton Rouge. Alan was watching it here in Gainesville. Um, we want to talk about several things, but first things first, did you feel like there was a drop-off with Treon at quarterback versus Will, and and did you think that'd be the case? You know, it, it's hard to say exactly because so much of the drop-off uh, of the offense overall had to do with the running game. I mean, Kelvin Taylor really never got going. Uh, they didn't really call that much for Treon to run with the ball as much as you might have thought, given his sort of past successes. Uh, I thought when he did, he looked fine. Um, I, I, it wasn't a huge, a huge step down from Treon, uh, uh, from Wilbur to Treon Harris at this point, especially when you say, you know, it's LSU and it's on the road and as good as Wilbur did look against Ole Miss, that's an Ole Miss defense that I think we learned based on that Memphis game is not as strong as we thought they would be. And it also was the benefit of playing in the swamp. Baton Rouge, I mean, you know, you were there. You can you can test this. It's a super intimidating, loud, terrifying place to play, especially at night in a close game. So given all of the factors that went into it, I thought I thought he performed perfectly admirably. Well, when you saw them lining up for that fake field goal, how many uh, gallons of gasoline did you pour on yourself before you lit yourself on fire watching that uh, happen? Yeah. It's just, I mean, what was so unpleasant about it is, you know, we, we send our three guys around the edge there, and they wait sort of for them to commit before the holder pitches the ball to the kicker. But Vernon Hargraves is the first one of them who's kind of like, oh, this is – they're not kicking it. And then you're just you're, – I was just screaming at the TV, like, please, Vernon Hargraves, like, make this tackle. Even if you don't stop him from converting for a first down, like, just stop them here. Just don't let them score a touchdown. And that was what really burned me, was having to watch this dopey-ass LSU kicker end up uh, <laughs> outrunning Vernon Hargraves to the end zone. But it's LSU, and that's what they do. They do tricky <laughs> I know, Les Miles, I just was texting with everybody. We got Les Miles again, over and over again. It's like, yeah. I don't know if McElwain hadn't seen the footage from the previous years, but <laughs> we definitely got had there. Uh, well, I, you know, you cover football, college football on a national level. I mean, but specifically I want to ask you about, you know, the SEC East. Speaking of, you know, fires, the dumpster fire that is the SEC East, except for maybe Florida. How did we arrive at such a scenario? Oh, um, I think the short answer is that most of these schools don't have anything resembling a quarterback. Uh, and when you, when you sort of look at the history of the SEC East, when it's done really well, it's because there are three, four guys in that mix who, if they're, even if they're not like, oh, that's going to be a first, second round NFL talent, it's somebody you can say, yeah, he can go out there, throw the ball 35 times in a game, and do really good things. I mean, 
I was talking to Dan Rubenstein, my coworker, about this today. Who's just in the SEC overall? Who's the best quarterback right now? Nobody's got numbers. The guys that do, like Brandon Allen's numbers look pretty good, but Arkansas certainly doesn't. Dak Prescott has sort of the seniority and experience, but Mississippi State hasn't done anything. Uh, Patrick Tolles at Kentucky has shown flashes. You know, it's just such a down year for for that side of the ball uh, in the SEC as a whole. Um, and in the East, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. The LSU loss was unpleasant as a result, but as a game, it was still pretty fun to watch. You felt like you were watching two teams that know what they want to do, that have an identity, uh, and they were trading good counterpunches. It didn't end up going Florida's way, but you didn't walk away from it thinking Florida's a mess. Georgia-Missouri was a 9-6 game <laughs> that ended that ended with a short field goal after the same Georgia kicker had missed an even shorter field goal. So, like, all told, you probably would be happier being a Florida fan than the Georgia fan based on last Saturday's results alone. And it, I don't know. Maybe you guys have a better sense of this. It's kind of weird that the SEC East is Florida propping up whatever reputation the division has, and then just a bunch of garbage. Like, it gives me a kind of weird feeling, and and I don't know. I, I, I hate to be this guy, but part of me is like, Florida's going to drop a stupid divisional game somewhere. And I don't know where it is yet, but it has – it just—it feels too good to be true, almost. Yeah, it does. There's someone who put up a little thing on Twitter. It was this Venn diagram. It was good things and things we can have, and those didn't intersect at all. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> feels like uh, yeah, the other shoe might drop here in a second. I'm with you. Do you feel like, given what you just said about hey, look, every every team in the SEC feels like a, a dumpster fire, with the exception of us, and and I think we essentially agree with that, more or less. Is there a team that you trust in the East? Is there anyone you can put your finger on and say, I trust that this team will be dependable from here on out? Or you look at it and say, I don't really know if we can know what to expect from any team in the East. I mean, I guess if we're just talking the rest of the season, I don't I don't feel too badly about Kentucky at this point. They played a close game with Auburn that they had a chance to win. Um, even their loss to Florida, you know, they, they, it was one of their better efforts in that series in the last, oh, you know, three decades or so. Um, they, they have some tough games coming up. They have to go to Georgia. They still have to play Louisville, even though that's not nearly the, uh, the challenging rivalry that it used to be in recent history. I feel okay about Kentucky just because Kentucky's young. Kentucky's still sort of, uh, working on getting guys they were a year or two ago acclimated to playing in the SEC. And I think, all told, they'll probably be okay. The offense needs to get better, but they play pretty pretty decent defense as a whole. Um, beyond that, though, I mean, Missouri's going to try to play with defense and win with defense. Vanderbilt is more or less doing the same thing. South Carolina's just bad. And Georgia and Tennessee, uh, you know, aren't even the same team within a game. They'll play one half as one team and one half as the other. So there's there's not a lot that you can sort of look at 
uh, excuse me, in the division and say, yeah, that's a known quantity at this point. It's still possible that Georgia puts something together, figures out something to do on the offensive side of the ball and goes on a nice little run to end the season. Even if they don't, even if they don't beat Florida, the remaining schedule is Kentucky, Auburn, Georgia Southern, and Georgia Tech. So, like, it, it doesn't feel out of the question to say, yeah, this could be a nine-win Georgia team, even if it's not a very good nine-win Georgia team. So you write a column for SB Nation called This Week in Schadenfreude, mm-hmm. uh, which I personally love. Uh, just thinking about that plus – the ending to the Michigan Michigan State game, uh, I don't know. The, that seems just a like it's going to write itself this week. Um, but yeah, well, give me your experience of watching that. Were you watching that live when that happened? Yeah, I was. I was watching that live with a couple coworkers um, here in our offices. It was just shocking because you know you you think you've seen painful endings to games, whether it's a hail mary or whether it's uh, even, you know, Boston College not even getting a offensive play or a kickoff at the end of that stupid loss to Wake Forest. The kick six, obviously. This had I, I really do believe that this takes the cake for the most painful way to lose a game. Just, you know, a game that Michigan had in hand. It's not like it was about to go to overtime. A rival that they haven't beaten in so long. Uh, a season that, until that point, felt so good for them after just years of mediocrity and failure to live up to expectations. It was, it was, it was the most painful thing I can remember seeing that said from a schadenfreude perspective in terms of like angry commenters, it's only been so, so because Michigan is at that point where they got the coach that they wanted more than anything. They still think they know that they can compete with a, top five, top 10 team like Michigan state. And there, there's still a significant portion of that fan base that it's like, Hey, don't turn on this team. Now, this is not Brady Hoke. This is not rich rod. They, they are trying to talk themselves off of the ledge reasonably. Well, I think Ole Miss fans might be ahead of them this week, actually, in terms of anger. Cause boy, you just can't, you just can't lose to Memphis in the same season that you beat Bama. You just can't do that. And so I wanted to get your predictions here uh, as we close. What is your, I don't know, maybe you can give us your head and your heart here for the Gators. What do you expect of them the rest of the way? Um, I, think, I think they should be able to beat Georgia. You know, the Georgia game is always the hardest one to predict because it feels least dependent on how good those teams actually are at the beginning of the season and how good they're projected to be. Um, certainly last year was a pretty good indication of that. But I like where Jim McElwain has the team at this point. Um, it's nice to still get a week off to sort of figure some things out and hopefully take advantage, at the very least, of a Georgia offense that looks totally lost right now. Uh, beyond that, if they drop any of the three games before the Florida State game, I think that will be equal parts shocking and disappointing. Vanderbilt, South Carolina, Florida Atlantic, just they, they don't look they don't look of the caliber of team that should be able to compete with Florida. Florida State though, 
that is a game that, as of now, I don't really feel that great about because there are there are a lot of similarities between Florida State and LSU. They both have just dominant running backs who are all too happy to get the ball 30 times a game, who can break big runs but are also uh, don't need space to beat you. They can break tackles. Uh, Florida State right now is not getting necessarily Heisman-level uh, quarterback play out of Everett Golson, but he's taking care of the ball. Uh, they have a couple of receivers who have helped him out in some situations and made some uh, made some nice grabs for them. And the defense, while it's not the Florida State defenses we've seen in some of their peak years, is still pretty good, can still get stops when they need them to, maybe not shut you down for a whole half, but shut you down for large parts of it. That's probably the one that I feel worst about right now. Um, that said, if Florida loses to Georgia and the Florida State game at this point and finishes 9-3, and three, I probably still feel fine about this season. Like, maybe I'm a pessimistic person. My expectations were not super high. And as long as we don't have any major injuries, any other PED suspensions, <laughs> anybody else doing something incredibly stupid, and, and we don't lose a game where that we really shouldn't, I'm, I'm, I don't know. For the first time in a while, I'm pretty happy with how Florida is as a football program. All right, let's get two two predictions from you here. Give me your okay. four. Give me your four playoff teams, and then give me who plays in the SEC championship game. So your four playoff teams and who's win, who's uh, playing in Atlanta this season? Okay. Uh, do you want which one do you want me to start with? Whichever one you feel like. All right, I'll start with the SEC because I feel that's a little easier. I'll stick with Florida just because they have the easiest path. Uh, they've sort of beaten the teams that are closest to them right now. You know, they still even if, even if they lose that Georgia game, uh, that requires Georgia to win out at that point. Not confident they will necessarily do that. Um, on the West side, I I still kind of like I still kind of like LSU. I know everybody's sort of talking about how Bama has fixed their problems from that old Miss game. Bama, while they look a lot better, still needed a fair number of turnovers to beat Texas A&M. Uh, still hasn't necessarily proven that they have long-term solutions at quarterback. So I'll take LSU-Florida rematch in Atlanta for the SEC title game. Uh, broader picture, if we're talking overall standings, who's going to be your final four? Um, the Pac-12 is really hard to pick right now. I think if I had to pick between Stanford and Utah, who look like the uh, likely representatives for their divisions, uh, I'll give a slight edge to Stanford right now. I think even that loss to Northwestern won't keep them out as long as they don't lose another game. It ends up looking – it's an early loss, and you can recover from early losses. The playoff committee sort of already shown us an example of that. Um, out of the Big Ten, I think Ohio State – as much as they stumbled early in the season and didn't look good against opponents they should have crushed, I think they're kind of turning it around. I think Michigan State is much more uh, perpetually flailing than Ohio State is right now. So I like them coming out of there. Uh, Big 12, I'll go with Baylor. TCU is a good team. TCU has maybe the best quarterback in the country. 
and one of the best wide receivers. Baylor also has those two things, and Baylor has not nearly the injury level that TCU does right now. The fourth pick is is probably the hardest one right now because I either have to go with – if I'm picking Florida LSU, you in, in theory I have to go with the winner of that game. Uh, I think at that point it will probably be – LSU. I, I, I think Florida is good this year. I think they'll still make it a close game. I think Leonard Fournette is such an amazing player that as long as LSU takes care of the ball, I feel pretty good about that. So that in no particular order, I'll go with LSU, Stanford, Baylor, Ohio State. All right, before we let you go, give us your favorite restaurant in Gainesville. Oh, man. So this is a tough question because so much has changed since the last time I was even in Gainesville. Um, the one I will say, it's, it's, a, it's a token answer, but when I took my at-the-time girlfriend, now wife, to a game in Gainesville probably four years ago or so, had to take her to Leonardo's. Just, just seemed wrong to come to Gainesville and not take advantage of uh, a nice slice, basically. So I'll, I'll stick with them. Okay. Well, Ryan, Nanny, uh, thank you so much for being on. If you want to find him on Twitter, my recommendation, follow him immediately. He's at, at Celebrity Hot Tub. Um, and, yeah, thanks so much for being on. really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Alan, let's begin the last segment by talking about who you think is going to win the not-so-vaunted SEC East. Well, I think I got to pick the Gators. I, we have control of our own destiny. Georgia, I don't know what's happening with them right now. They seem just all over the place. Just won a game 9-6. to six. I mean, Missouri has a tough defense. But, I mean, I, I don't know. i got to assume we, we beat Vanderbilt South Carolina. So I got to pick the Gators, and that seems crazy from where we started at the beginning of the season. It does. I think sitting right now, I, I, I'm very confident that it will be us winning the East. And if we don't, then we will be talking about a very sad, in my opinion, regression that I don't see coming. Georgia is, is really not a good football team. They can't pass well. Uh, without Chubb, they've lost their guy. In a, in a way, kind of, they're a poor man's LSU. Because I think if you take Fournette off LSU and I kind of keep trashing LSU, they're just not a very good football team. And they're not. But they're masked right now by having an all-world player. Uh, Georgia does not have that anymore. And, and their defense and their defenses can implode at times. Defense can implode. You know, they're a good team. They have talent. They could possibly maybe beat us. But I think we learned a lot playing against a power team like LSU. And uh, we talked about that in the cast. You know, could we handle the power team? Maybe uh, is maybe. the answer. I think if we played the game again, maybe it's different. And that's our chance against Georgia. We kind of do play this game again, like we said. So I like us to win the East. We should win the East. Uh, if we don't, then we'll be having a lot of comments in the podcast as to why. Let's go to the West. The West, more interesting than the East, without a doubt. Who comes out of that? Well, I think it has to be Bama at this point. I mean, I'm with you a little bit. What I saw from LSU, if you just want to just straight up run it at somebody... Bama has that incredible front four. I don't think you can just line it up and run it at them, even with somebody like Leonard Fournette. And I think Nick Saban's going to eat Brandon Harris for lunch. You know, I. So I think it's got to be Bama. They look. I don't think they're 
an unstoppable juggernaut of Bama teams of old, but they seem to have, you know, they've got past this A&M game. Auburn is, you know, in the toilet. So it's got to be Bama. Your thoughts? I I'm, I'm feel like you're leaning the same way. You, you are feeling correctly. Last week I, I stated on the podcast that, you know, Bama I thought would absolutely take care of business against A&M, and they did. Um, and I think Bama is the horse to beat in the West. I think Bama is the team to beat in the SEC. LSU versus Bama will be interesting. They generally play really. Fun. They generally play a really close game, even when there's years I don't think they should. Um, it's it's power on power. You know, both teams have power backs. Both teams have questions at quarterback. Uh, I just think, given what I saw out of LSU's defense, Bama's defense is infinitely better than LSU's. Um, I could see Calvin Ridley just running wild on their secondary uh, he should he he will and and more importantly they have a power back i don't know how well they'll run the ball against lsu but it'll be a whole lot better than we did mm-hmm. and uh any semblance of a running game given how poor their secondary faced i think will will open things up for them so i like bama out of the west um let's broaden the scope here there were okay. a lot of really great games on saturday i was in lsu um by the way, having a wonderful time. I've been to LSU three times. This is my third time, and this time was the charm. The people there were incredible. Spent a lot of time with, with a variety of LSU tailgates. Yeah, we did ate. you stop by a tailgate as Jim's advice? Many, many tailgates, actually, we stopped at and had catfish, fried catfish. We had um, this, you know, Fred's or Frank's balls is what they were called. <laughs> they, you know, it's like kind of many sweaty balls from SNL, but they were really good. They had... I mean, crawfish in there and shrimp and other things. And it was really incredible. I mean, really, the whole day was filled with people that were so nice, so genuine, sharing all their tailgates with us to the point to where all of us that were there felt like it was the best day of tailgating we've ever had, period. And at the game, we were surrounded by LSU fans. They were so friendly the entire time that when they would go get something, they would ask us if we wanted anything. So it was really great. So that was great. So you know, but you hats didn't off. get to see a lot of the games. Hats off to LSU, but I didn't get to see a lot of the games. I saw pieces at the tailgates I was at. So I saw parts of the Michigan game. I saw parts of the Bama game. So I mainly would hear the murmurs echoing through. But it was a great day in college football. And so what were your thoughts? What, what were some of the things that stuck out to you on this past Saturday? Well, obviously the Michigan-Michigan State. I feel like Michigan won that game, obviously. That was one of the crazier endings I've ever seen Maybe the craziest. I don't know. It was so what we were stunned, and I don't care at all who wins that game. You know, I picked Michigan last week on the pod. You did too, but that was unbelievable, heartbreaking loss. Uh, you know, Utah continues to impress me, um, and I'm surprised by that. You know, each week they keep looking better and better. Stanford looks awesome. You know, they finally got it rolling. Christian McCaffrey is great, uh, and then Baylor is, you know, unreal. I've been a Baylor fan of this offense for a couple of years. I remember, like, queuing you in on it a few years ago. And and they, they haven't played anybody yet. We keep saying that. Uh, but they look unstoppable. Yeah, they, they, they certainly do. Baylor is, is a machine right now. Their offensive stats are probably even beyond what you get in a video game, which is most impressive. Utah stuck out to me as well. I've watched them play a lot because they're the late game all the yeah. time. So you come back from our game and Utah's on. They're a really good sort of mini power team. Really great defense. Very aggressive mentality. Playing with a lot of confidence. I don't know if they have what it takes to, to make it to the playoff uh, because they do now play in a real conference. So they're interesting for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't find out actually about the way Michigan lost until later on during the Florida LSU game. And, and I, I actually 
couldn't stop doing anything other than just saying like, oh my gosh, that's the, I can't even imagine, it's the worst possible way to lose the game. I just kept watching the replay thinking this is a tragedy. I feel so bad for this punter. Like he'll spend the rest of his life never forgetting about this horrific moment. <laughs> and it's really brutal. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, you feel for that kid. I mean, I know a lot of people are ripping him, but as a human, anyone who's played sports knows you don't forget the tough losses. Like you replay them in your mind. Yeah. And this poor guy for the rest of his life will be defined by that moment if he lets it define him. And even if he doesn't, it's going to be there. And that, that, <laughs> I just, that's excruciating. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. It's crazy how many things had to happen. I mean, they were, if they tackle him before the goal line, they win. It was just an amazing confluence of events that happened. So wild day in college football. All right, let me ask you for another kind of prediction here. Give me your four playoff teams. Yes. Now that we have a playoff in college football. You know, I feel... Which I'm stoked about that. Anyone who knows me knows I spent years campaigning for this. So it's great. It's great that we're talking about it on a podcast now. Like dream come true, right? Let me check that box. I have such an unknown feeling right now. Of course, anyone who knows me knows I generally have great opinions that I state as fact. I I have no idea. I'm going to name some here and I I don't want to be held accountable because I don't don't have a great feeling. Literally, I don't have a great feeling about any of them. Which is weird. I can't name one that I say, that team is definitely going to be in the playoff. So, with that, I'm going to name my playoff teams with a big asterisk next to all of them and say that I could see all of them losing. Um, I'm going to go ahead and name Baylor first because I do think Baylor is the best team in the country right now. Uh, Their defense is much improved. It's not the Baylor of old where they give up 75 points a game, but it's still not a juggernaut. Their offense is hands down the best offense in the country. It can score on anybody. So they're dangerous. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with them. I'm gonna go with Bama. I've been riding them. I think they come out of the SEC. I think Bama's greatest fortune is if they make it there, they probably face us, and I think they match up really well against us. Uh, if we had Will, which I'm just gonna probably keep saying a million times this year, if we had Will, I think they still match up really well against us. I think we could give them a run for sure um, because we match up okay with them, but we don't stop power runners. So I'm gonna go Bama. I really don't want to go Ohio State. I don't think they're very good. I think Jim Harbaugh owns them, and he has their number. I also don't want to go Michigan State. I don't think they're very good. I don't even know who to go with. I probably would have gone with Michigan if this would have happened and Michigan gets the win, but they just screwed the pooch on that one. So Agreed. I'm going to say Ohio State, but I, I don't believe in them. I think I think Michigan's going to beat them, and when we predict that week, I'm probably going to pick that. So I'm going to go there, and that leaves me with one last team. And uh, at this point in time, it's, it's a true toss-up. My heart wants to say Utah. I have to feel like this is the year that the Cardinal, and that'd be the Stanford Cardinal, okay. gets in there. I think they're playing good power football. I think the schedule favors them. I think Utah's a very good matchup for them. I think they're battle-tested, uh, and I think they're playing their best football right now. So I'm going to go ahead and, and put Stanford in there, which feels insane to me to have Stanford in a college football playoff. Like I can't believe I just said that. So, so tell me who you have. Well, I'm with you on those first three. Baylor, I just talked about them. Bama, same thing. I think they ride out the SEC schedule here. I I think OSU is, a, you know, a pretender, but I don't know that I see anybody else, like, really being. They're just starting to pick it up, and I think they're going to play JT Barrett at quarterback now, and that should be enough to get them over the edge. And I think I'm going to pick something a little squirrely here. You know, it feels tempting to pick Clemson because, uh, you know, they have a really easy road through the ACC, and it looks like they'll probably go undefeated. But I just have a feeling, I know Dabo Swinney would like, you know, hang me for this, but that they're going to Clemson it at some point. Um, so I'm going to go reverse of last year and pick both Baylor and TCU 
to make the playoffs. I think there's a lot of respect for the Big 12 amongst the upper-tier teams. Oklahoma looked really good this past week. So, you know, I don't think TCU, they're on a high-wire act right now because of how much they're injured on defense. But I think I'll take those four. I like it. It's a really fun year in college football this year. If you look at the top 15, really most of them are mathematically and a lot to make a case for getting there, including even us. Yeah, I think the best thing that could happen for us is for LSU to win out because I think that we can play with them um, against as opposed to like a Bama. I guess if you assume A&M were to go there, it'd be the best matchup for us, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't look like that's possible. So Everything's on the table for us. We're going to talk more about this in the future. What does this mean now that we've got who we have? You know, how do we go forward? How do we win football games? Uh, I think that for most Gator fans, and certainly for this podcast, we feel like what we've said all along has been true. Our ceiling has been dropped. I think we saw that against LSU. I'm imagining if you guys were watching the game intently, you saw it too. And so it will be a process now going forward to be able to produce enough to win, change the team's identity a little bit, and uh, get the leadership back. You know, one, one last thing I want to comment on this past weekend was Trayon is not the leader that Will Greer is. And, and I think you saw Jake McGee step up and kind of try to be the guy on offense that, that held things together because Trayon was, was disappearing and he completely disappeared in the last two drives. And yeah. say what you want about other guys. Will has a clutch factor that you don't see often. And so you have to replace that. There has to be a guy in the last two minutes that steps up and you want that to be your quarterback. I don't think Trayon's ever going to be that kind of personality so you got to find a way to build your team into something where the guy that has that personality is either getting the ball or taking the lead. And that's going to be something that's going to be an evolving storyline as we go forward. Before we wrap up this episode, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, I would just think, you know, the thing that's going to move this team forward is what we said at the top, is that they're resilient. They've shown that almost weekly, that they don't let adversity, like, really kill them. I mean... Like I said, the end of the first half against LSU, that should have been a dagger. Them going back up two scores, and we were right in that game with a chance to win it. So whatever happens, I feel like this team will you know, adjust. The ceiling is lowered. I don't expect us to be playing for the national championship for certain. But so many good things can still come out of this season. We can still win the East, and that would be a huge feather in McElwain's cap. Agreed. We learned a lot about the team, and I think McElwain, as, a, as any great, great coach does, will apply those lessons to making us better. And with that, we're going to put a bow on this episode. Thanks so much, as always, for joining us. You can catch us on Facebook. You can catch us on Twitter. You can also email us at the GatorNationFB at gmail.com. You can reach us through a variety of ways, comments, feedback, whatever you need. We're here to continue to make the show great for you. We enjoy doing it. We love doing it. And we'll be back next week for always one of the favorite games in the schedule. Florida, Georgia. Yeah, the largest outdoor cocktail party. I'm looking forward to it already. See you guys next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.